allows himself, goes to death for you and for me. Now, he didn't stay dead, and we celebrate that. But the cross has historically represented Christianity in ways that the incarnation, and and I I don't want to minimize from the incarnation, the resurrection, and the ascension, but the cross is the center point of human history. It is there that the perfect sacrifice was made. And so uh, we're in the season that is historically called Lent, and we are doing, we are preaching through the uh, John 13 on. Last Sunday, Chris spoke from the first part of John 13, where Jesus, in an act of ultimate humbleness, washes the disciples' feet. Think about this. The God of the universe who hung the stars kneels down in front of some dirty fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, you know, right-wing militia. Uh, Simon the Zealot was a right-wing militia man from that era. Uh, Levi, uh, or Matthew the tax collector, belonged to the Roman system. And in between you have strong Jews and weak Jews and fishermen and professionals. Jesus' disciples kind of represent his world. Now, and, and that's important to remember because uh, of what we're going to look at today. Now, in, in, in the passage that Chris spoke from, I think the key to understanding John 13 to 21 is found in John 13, verse 7. I'm going to read that verse. So Jesus, uh, the context of this verse is Jesus got up from supper, he took off his jacket, put on a towel, wrapped a towel around his waist, and he uh, poured water into a basin and washed the disciples' feet. And uh, he comes to Peter, and Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, we've historically interpreted that as Peter saying, well, okay, so why are you... But maybe Peter is saying, I'm kind of the boss. You know, uh, I don't need my feet washed. Jesus answered him, and I think this is key to understanding this today, even today's passage. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. What is the afterword there? Afterwards you will understand. What needs to happen before Peter can understand, or the rest of them? So then it leads us into this portion. Now let me just give a little bit of background the first 12, 12 chapters of John cover the first two, two and a half years of Jesus, well, the first portion of Jesus' life. Chapter 13 through 21 slow down, and, and they cover from, chapter 13 through 20 covers from Thursday evening through Sunday morning. Four days. That's all it covers. And this is Jesus' longest uh, discourse, longest sermon, if you want to call it that, to his disciples. It's sometimes called the farewell discourse, and it all happens in the upper room where, where they had the, the supper. Uh, the narrative does not focus on anything outside of the room. Everything's in the room except for one short phrase that we will read today, and I'll point to it when we do that. Uh, it is dominated by language of you and I. I am the true vine, you are the branches. And it's very personal and is not only speaking 
to, to his disciples, but to us. And we, we can only understand the passage today if we understand the afterwards. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. The cross and the resurrection are at the center point. It is at the heart of the gospel. And if we do not have that in focus, if we have any kind of religious system or anything else in focus, none of this makes any sense. Notice also, uh, well, we'll let's read the passage and I come back and, and cover this. So we're going to begin in verse 21. Uh, well, uh, maybe we should. Maybe we should. Did you notice how verse 21 opens? Verse 21 says, after saying these things. Do we need to know what these things are? So uh, let's begin at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also you should do just as I have done to you. You also should do just as I have done to you. Think about, I, I, I love this kind of thinking through this. Um, he, he tells them, if I've washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. And I, I can imagine maybe James kind of sneaking a glance and saying, you mean I'm supposed to wash his feet? Really? Verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Do you notice kind of the crypticness of Jesus' talk? He says uh, that when it does take place, what? What's going to happen? It's kind of cryptic, uh, kind of riddle. He's saying, these things are going to happen, but when they happen, you'll know when they're happening. So after saying these things in verse 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Peter points over. And motion to him. You get the pictures that they're all, by the way, reclining at the table. If, if they had a banquet, they would put a low table down, and it was common practice to kind of lay down on your side, recline on one elbow, and eat with the other hand. That's what they're doing. They're all kind of laying around the table, probably on some cushions. And they're, they're laying there, uh, kind of propped on one elbow, and one of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, is very close to Jesus because if he would lean back, he would be right on Jesus' chest. And he kind of looks around, and Peter says, Throgan, ask. So the dis that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? 
Jesus answered, it is, the one, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after I had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. That is the only reference in John 13 to 17 of anything outside the upper room. It was night. Some translations say it was dark. And it's meant for us to think about the fact that what Judas is doing is evil, is wrong. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterwards. Again, that afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This, uh, this passage is absolutely fascinating in that there are three principal characters along with Jesus. Three of the disciples mention, are mentioned by name. First of all, there is, of course, Peter. Peter is everywhere. By the way, in a few short moments, a little later this night, they will come to arrest Jesus. And Peter will, let's give Peter this, say, I've got to defend my Lord. And he'll yank out his sword and, and give a whack at the guy. Now, he did try to cut the guy's head off. We know this. Because you can't slice off someone's ear and not hit their shoulder. So what Peter did is yank out his sword and go like that to try to get that high priest's head, a high priest's servant's head, and the guy went like that and took his ear off. Now, I don't know if the ear then jumped up, Jesus healed. What do you think Peter thought about? Peter, uh, Jesus said, put your sword away. That's not how this works. And Did the ear jump up then and go right, uh, healed the ear or whatever. But uh, Peter did try. Now, Peter is this enigmatic figure at this point. There's something in Peter. So you have Peter and you have Judas. And then you have this, uh, this disciple uh, whom Jesus loved. And we today, of course, know that it is John himself. Uh, this is the first time he's mentioned like this, by the way. And John is a figure that appears through the story now. 
John is, uh, uh, here he's asked to explain why, you know, he thinks, Peter feels like he has an inner road in, 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 to Jesus. Uh, a little later in chapter 18, he gets the door open for Peter. Jesus is taken inside the court, and uh, John is in with, Peter, with Jesus, and Peter wants to get in, and he knocks at the door, and the servant girl doesn't want to let him in, but John convinces the servant girl we should let this guy in. He, uh, he is the only male disciple that is present at Jesus' death. John is. He's the only one. Uh, and he witnessed the sword piercing his side. By the way, he outran. He could run faster than Peter, too, because he outran Peter to the tomb that Sunday mor- the next Sunday morning. He is the first to believe, and he is the first to recognize Jesus when they go back out to fishing. So John, so you have Judas, you have Peter, and you have John. Now, I actually did think about it. In fact, I prepared for a while thinking about how we all fit those categories at one point or another. But today I want to look at three key pieces of the passage and, and think about what it means for our lives today. Now, we cannot understand this passage if we're trying to figure out a system to live better or a religious system. We have to interpret this passage through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ, the afterward that is going to happen. Afterwards, you will believe. Afterwards, you will understand. And we understand what Jesus is doing here by saying, oh, we understood what he did at the cross. So let's look at the first portion, the betrayal of Jesus. One of you will betray me. Now think about this. These men have followed Jesus very faithfully, or at least, to, to, and they're all reclining and they're having their moment. They're thinking about eventually taking over the world because Jesus has said, my kingdom is going to take over the world. And they're, in their mind, they're trying to figure out how this is going to go and how this is go, what this is going to be. And they're kind of having this uh, upper room men's meeting. Now Jesus kind of comes along and upsets that cart too. But this, uh, they're thinking, boy, what? And, and just previous to this, uh, they've convinced one of their mothers to say, who's going to sit at the right hand? And it's all this kind of power brokering and, and mongering. And then Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Think about what that did to the disciples. They kind of start looking around and saying, does he actually know that I spoke to that guy? Does he know? Wait, wait, does he know? Uh, what does he know that we don't? And so I already alluded to the fact that Peter then points to John, and John asks, who is this? And, and it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, how did the other disciples not know it was Judas? Because it, the, 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 the scripture seems to indicate that Jesus dipped bread in and gave it directly to Judas. Judas ate it and got up and went out of there. And everybody could have said, well, he just dipped the bread and ate it and left. But it is a, it, what is more probably true is that Jesus dipped the bread into the cup and passed it out to his disciples and all of them ate it. And then Judas gets up and because he's the money man, uh, the treasure, they say, uh, they think he's going out to buy something. They, they're so clueless. Uh, come on, guys! But they're, they're, in some ways, they're, they're clueless. Uh, and, and Judas leaves. Now, this, this whole idea of betrayal. Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed. Jesus knew his betrayer. 
Jesus washed his betrayer's feet. Why didn't he do something to prevent this from happening? Why did he not stop Judas? Do you ever think about that? Jesus knew. I mean, he just, it says, now Judas, go ahead and do what you're going to need to do. And Judas gets up and goes out into the dark. I don't know the answer to all those questions except to know that Jesus was intent on one mission, one mission alone, to give his life so that you and I could have life. And if it took this, it takes this. So Judas is part of the plan. That's all I can say. And we can argue about whether God knew or didn't know. I don't, we can talk about that. But Judas, is, this, is, this is a part of the plan. God is not surprised by Judas' betrayal. It also speaks to the times in our lives when we face betrayal. Have you ever been betrayed or thought you had been betrayed? How do you feel when you find out that somebody has betrayed you? How do you feel when you are the betrayer? But even maybe a greater question is, how many times have you betrayed Jesus? How many times have you got up and went out into the dark and walked away from the power of Jesus' light, power of Jesus' spirit in your life? How many times have you been Judas? We are so terrifically hard on Judas. Judas actually probably had the opportunity to repent because what Peter does is the very same thing that Judas does. Peter betrays Jesus. Peter betrays him. Peter is no different than Judas, which is good for Peter in our mind, right? Satchuhian. Because he's the loud one. But let me ask you this. What do you do when you're called to stand for Jesus? You kind of shift away and slide out? Or do you say, no, no, that, I'm not, I, that's not who I am. And do we have the courage to wash our betrayer's feet when we are betrayed? But a bigger question, though, I think, is how do we, you and I betray Jesus? I think that every time that we walk away from the power of God in our lives, when we're faced with something, we betray Jesus. You betray the power of the cross. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus is meant to give you power over sin and death. And when you give in to that sin, you are betraying the life and death of Jesus. Second thing I just want to look at is what Jesus says in verse 31. Now when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Wait, this is directly connected to Judas leaving. So Judas leaves, goes out into the dark, and Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Can you imagine what the disciples thought? Okay, here we go, guys. Here's where we get to the top. And, 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 and then he says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. 
And it, there's something about, there's a sense of excitement here. Jesus is saying, oh boys, it's time. I'm going to be glorified. It, again, I'm, maybe I'm putting too much emphasis onto it. But, but the, the point is, this is leading somewhere. It's leading up to somebody. And the glory of Jesus in the, is in the fact that he was get, willing to give his life for others, including Judas. He gave his life for Judas. Stop and think about that. He washed Judas' feet, gave Judas every opportunity to repent. Judas never did repent. But, but there, there's a sense where Jesus is saying, the moment of glory has come. And I will be glorified, and because of that, God will be glorified in, in him. Jesus was obedient to God, God was glorified, and re, in return, the Son is glorified. And if the supreme call, Jesus says, the supreme call for me is to bring glory to the Father, that is our call a day. He gives us that call a day. And so when you stand for truth, when you are real, when you live well in the life of Jesus, you bring glory to the Father. You bring glory to the Son. And you bring glory to the body of Jesus. Um, in the Old Testament, the glory of God was found in the temple. Think about this. When Solomon dedicated the temple, there's all these people there. They build this wonderful edifice, and then Solomon invites God's presence down. And when the presence of God comes down into the temple, the people are so awed, it says they fell on their feet, they fell on their knees in the gravel. It's very distinct that it points out it was on pavement or gravel. They fell down when the power of God comes into the temple like that. Now, in, 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 second, in 1 Corinthians 3, it says, you are the God's temple. And by the way, that doesn't mean you individually. It's plural. It means you, the body, are God's temple. And God's Spirit dwells in you. So when I look at you, I see a whole bunch of the glory of God kind of all melting together. And it makes me want to kneel down and say, Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that your glory resides in this body. Now, a bit of it is veiled now and then. And there are some Judases and Peters and some Johns and some Jameses and some of those people sitting here, and we don't have the full scope of it yet, but there is a glory here because God's Spirit resides in you, in us. And there's a sense of excitement in Jesus saying, okay, the moment has come. I, it's going to come to a head now. And then he ends us up by saying, as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Again, this kind of cryptic language. Where are you going? Where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It would have been much better if Jesus would have kept that last part off. I think the disciples probably looked around. And, you know, this is... They don't understand everything just like we don't. They kind of looked around and said, really? So now this is, you know, this is going from betrayal to, okay, the moment has come. We're going to take over the world to loving each other. Me? Love that guy? Now, wait a minute. And by the way, this is not talking about loving the world. That's a natural result of us loving each other. You cannot love the world. You cannot love your neighbor if you don't love your brother's. And sisters are not well. That's according 
to Jesus. There's a distinct book shift in the book of John here. By the way, the, word, the references to love in the book of John, there are 44 in all. 37 of them occur from chapter 13 to chapter 17. Prior to this, he had been talking about light and life and, and good stuff. Now he's, he's got his 12, his inner court in there. And he says, now you need to love each other. This is how the world is going to see that what I'm doing is for real. It's when you love each other. Think about the three disciples that are mentioned here. Peter, Judas, and, uh, and John. Think about what John may have felt a few, uh, few that later that night and the next day when he thinks back about Peter being in that inner courtyard and surely he heard Peter. And, and the maid asked Peter, Hey, wait, your speech betrays you. You're a Dutchman. I mean, you're a Galilean. You're a Galilean. And they said, and Peter said, No, I'm not. He said, Aren't you a follower of that guy that was on trial? No, I am not. Think about what that did to John as well. When we hear our fellow Christians betray Jesus like that. It should do something. But John looks at, across the room at Peter and says, me love that guy? Wait. But notice how focused this is in Jesus saying this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you, love, if you have love for one another. It doesn't say people are going to know you're my disciples by how much money you give. People are, you know you're my disciple by how you love your worldly neighbors or how much missionizing you do or evangelism you do or how much service you give. The, tr- the, the mark of a disciple is love for each other. And, and again, this is in a world the Jews focused on their separation. They were distinctly separate people and they hated everything outside of that because God hated it. They justified everything by saying that. And they didn't even like each other very well. The Pharisees didn't like the Sadducees. By the way, in Jesus' inner court, there's also Pharisees, people who follow the Pharisee party and the Sadducee party and the Zealots. None of those groups liked each other very much. And and, uh, the Romans didn't like each other very much either, and they didn't like people outside the Romans. They said, anyone who isn't a Roman or a Greek is a barbarian. And so there's a lot of, uh, you know, divisions in their world. Uh, there is in our world as well. Think about the divisions that God, that, that Satan has thrown into our world and that the kingdoms of this world build on. Divisions in politics, divisions in race, divisions in cultures, divisions in practices, divisions by affiliation with a certain thing. All these divisions. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is actually called to break down those divisions. And when we're together as believers, the, the identifying mark is our love for each other. And I am the first to say that the people closest to me are sometimes the hardest to love. Now, I don't mean Narita. You all looked at her. But you understand what I'm saying. When I start to get to know people well, and I see their problems, the warts, why do they do that? Come on. Get with the system. That's when it becomes, it's much easier I like my neighbor. My neighbor happens to be here, and he's not a worldly man, by the way. Uh, but my, you know, it's easy for me to love Steve. He's at a distance. He's a nice dog. Uh, he plays with my dog. You know, it, it, 
But when we get to really know each other and we rub shoulders and, and, and the things begin to kind of rub a little bit like this, that's when it becomes hard to love. But yet, that is the moment that we are called to lay down those things that divide us and kneel down in front of each other and wash each other's feet. And, get, and begin to say, huh, so tell me why, um, why is this such a big deal to you? Or whatever we need to do to kind of overcome those boundaries. It is what Jesus did to Simon, Peter, to Judas, and to John. Jesus knew that he was dining with Judas, who would betray him, and Peter, who would deny him. Yet he knelt before them and gently washed their feet, modeling for them and for us a radical love that goes far beyond anyone's worthiness. It's this kind of love. In this kind of love, there is not only a willingness, but a plea for reconciliation, for broken relationships to be made whole, to reach out to us. Brothers and sisters, as people who are rescued by the cross and the love that it reveals, will we be shaped by the cross and the love it will reveal through us to the world. You know, the way we learn not only to tell the story of Jesus, but live the story of Jesus is to love. There is this final poignant passage in chapter 13 where Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And, and there's a plea in Peter. Lord, what are you doing here? What are you doing? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life? Will you? Peter, uh, Jesus' response to Peter is full of love, gentleness, and, and maybe a sad irony that Peter will not. In fact, Peter will deny him, but Jesus does not stop loving him. So when the New Testament wants to reveal the true meaning of the cross, listen to this, brothers and sisters and friends. The true meaning of the cross is not found in bullet points or theology. It's found in a king who is willing to love his broken followers in such a way that invites them back into relationship with him. Glory and love. The word has become flesh and is now going to become glorified and show us the way. And the, the question that Jesus asked Peter at the very end is the same question he asks us, both in this season of Lent and outside of this season. Will you 
lay down your life for me? Will you love? Will you glorify the Father? But ultimately, are you willing to give your all for Jesus? That's the message of the cross. It's the message of the gospel. Let's stand together. I have rarely done this in my 24 plus years of preaching, but I want to invite you to very seriously consider. I feel this weight on my spirit right now. that there are those of you who have betrayed Jesus and need a moment to make that right with him. Need some time to repent. Or that there are people sitting here who are wrestling with, am I really willing to lay down my life for him? We're just going to take a moment. I invite you to examine your own heart as we go into the season of Easter and say, Lord, How am I living? Am I bringing glory to you? Am I loving? Let's just take a moment. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that in this moment you showed us the way and that the afterwards, what we can understand in the afterwards is that you were willing to not only wash the feet of Judas and Peter and John, but you were also willing to die for them. And you very willingly love them. And Lord, there have been so many moments when I've failed in that and I acknowledge that. But thank you for healing and hope and deliverance. And I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for those who are feeling the weight of having betrayed you. And I pray that you would give them the strength to repent and to talk to you and to others about that. And I pray for those who are wrestling with the question, will you give your life? I pray that you will give them the strength to say yes. The courage to walk into it. And Lord, then for us, I pray that you would give us the strength and courage to love. Because it's when we love each other that glory comes to you. And so give us the strength and the courage and the power to love. And I pray against the darkness that is around us and the fear that is around us. 
And I pray that you would make us light, love, and life as we go forward from here. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel. Do you have a song? Okay. Let's uh, sing. Uh, uh, what was the last song you had, Daniel? Be still. Uh, uh, yeah, let's sing a verse of Be Still and Know.